Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and we're joined by Bonnie Harris-Lowe, who's a game designer and writer for Wild Seed Games. Bonnie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, Janelle Monet, Dirty Computer. Yes. What is it, and what impact has it had on you? It is an Afrofuturist work of genius. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, it's uh, it really just struck a chord in me when it came out because, you know, Janelle Monet's whole image for most of their career was, you know, being kind of removed from humanity, very like clean, um, you know, being essentially a robot, a computer. And with Dirty Computer, uh, they just came out absolutely swinging, throwing uh, caution to the wind. And like, it was about, you know, Black femininity, sexuality, um, all these kinds of things. Uh, and it was just really amazing to see someone whose image had kind of been defined as being like, you know, as, I don't want to say, I guess, not unapproachable, but like, you know, non, um, like almost kind of detached from traditional ideals of humanity and femininity. Uh, just dive right into it and be so connected with everyone around them uh, in all these beautiful ways. And yeah, I think it's been very impactful because recently I started identifying as non-binary, which Jenna Monet also does. Uh, and I think it was just kind of a testament to, um, you know, seeing that character evolution and seeing what happens when you can like really embrace the sides of yourself that you kind of want to avoid or or repress and just like you know what happens when you embrace them so yeah nice that's beautiful and and very much to your point so there there's obviously the the album itself mm -hmm. um but the main focus is this it's about a 50 minute video yes film montage um which which crosses over all of these amazing genres like post-apocalyptic and there's some punk stuff in there and some beautiful reimaginings of genres and ideas and Afrofuturism. And it's a really visually stunning thing, along yes. with the music, obviously. When did you first see this? Did you see it when it came out? Or how did you encounter Dirty Computer? So I was interested. I had listened to Janelle Monet for a few years and then uh, actually connected with my current partner over her. Uh, back when we nice. were still friends. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's always a good way to meet people. It is, yeah. And like Dirty Computer had just come out and I hadn't heard it yet. And so he was playing it for me and we were talking about it, uh, just vibing about like the lyrics and the general atmosphere of it. And then when the emotion picture came out, we actually happened to, he happened to be like visiting me at my house. And so I was like, oh my God, do you want to go watch it? And so we did. And it was just an amazing spectacle that encompasses, you know, I'm not going to repeat everything I just said, but you know, just like the visual component like you said is just as amazing as the auditory element uh, just so much control over the uh, various art styles the fashion it's just amazing nice and so in terms of something like dirty computer which i think we can agree was a surprise to many people and is wildly impactful and in a really good way mm -hmm. strange in the very best way it's strange and weird and unexpected and when you're doing your work as you're evolving as a narrative designer as a story maker of all these things are there comparable things that you're taking from that that you want to put out into the world as an expression of yourself as an influence as something that's an interesting question i think not necessarily related to dirty computer in and of itself but i think just my approach to art generally is somewhat similar as far as like wanting to draw on like the personal and the deep aspects of the self and kind of just bring those forward. Uh, I think where I'm at currently is much more in the way of like, you know, early Monet of like, you know, kind of making that more abstract, making it more mysterious. Uh, Cause like the last project that I did um, was a game that was inspired by like my anxieties over climate change and like changing dynamics with my family and how difficult that was. And it's a sci-fi thriller. <laughs> uh, so like that has, you know, very, uh, it doesn't like, you know, showcase myself as like Bonnie, you know, it, it showcases like, you know, these are parts of like my experience as a person that I think will resonate people. How can I package them in a way that 
like doesn't incriminate me, but is like, you know, also interesting and resonant and approachable. Beautiful. And, and as, as you're developing, I'm going to use the wrong word, but masks or things to put forward or avatars as it were, be behind that, what's your story? Where do you come from, Bonnie? And what's, what's some of the things that have formed you on this journey? So I grew up in South Carolina. I did not um, know a lot of other people like me where I grew up. I'm biracial. I have one black parent and one white parent. And in South Carolina, it's still very much one or the other and very few other people of other ethnicities around. And so since I was like five, I've been just extremely aware of race as a concept. And I noticed that as well when I started playing video games around the same time, like age five or six. Um, the biggest one was The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker, where, you know, we have Tetra, this little pirate girl um, who's got brown skin. And yes, technically it's a tan or whatever, but she's brown and that's the important part. And I was so hyped to see that because I'd never seen um, a brown person in a video game besides Ganon, who's, you know, evil. Definitely never seen a brown woman <laughs> prior to that, um, much less a girl my own age. So that was really cool. But then, spoiler alert, it's uh, we get about halfway through the game. We find out that she's actually Princess Zelda. And when she has her whole transition, her skin turns white. And that was absolutely devastating for me as like, I think I was about eight when I played it. Um, and that just kind of told me that something something is not right in the world of video games and I need to fix it. It's an excellent conclusion and it's so strong. Like that really fundamental thing of there is a problem. I am going to fix it. It's such a simple and powerful thing. And, and I think something that a lot of people on these creative journeys relate to because it is ultimately personal, right? Mm -hmm. Something somewhere grabs you and you react to it in some way and that sends you off on, I am going to go on some kind of journey. Yes. Nice. <laughs> so where did so where did this take you? Obviously, you, you love video games, but a lot of people play video games and love video games and don't necessarily become creators of them. Mm -hmm. What happened between those early experiences and where you are now? So I wasn't sure for a long time about whether or not I was going to make video games. I like, of course, had thought about it because that was my main hobby for my entire life. Um, but the more I learned about like, you know, how I learned about like crunch and how being in the industry is very, you know, physically and emotionally taxing. Um, and then, you know, when I was 14, Gamergate happened and I learned about, you know, harassment from all sides. And it just didn't seem like, you know, a pleasant or welcoming place. So I started actually thinking about going other routes, but I still wanted to do something like media adjacent. I was thinking about things with music, things with like television. Um, but I was actually getting ready to go into college a few years later, undeclared. And my both my parents are college professors and my mother, uh, who is especially passionate about, uh, you know, the academic futures of uh, her children. Um, not to say that my dad isn't, but, you know, my mom's the one who's more like, you know, you've got to do this specific thing. She was not going to let me go into college with an undeclared major. So she's just like went through the catalog and just threw, threw things at me that were like, you know, in the media family until I picked something. Uh, and the University of South Carolina had a media arts program, which was like a little sampling of film, television, photography, games, just like, here's all the things you can do in media. Let's explore them. And games, the, the games courses were the ones that uh, really made me feel like the happiest and the most purposeful. And so I took that and I ran with it all the way to California for graduate school where I uh, studied at the University of Southern California for their interactive media and games program. And yeah, while I was there, I it was a three-year program and I met a lot of great people, made a lot of connections. And that's ultimately what got me the job that I have now. Nice. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great story. And I think like, just to reach back into, into a couple of the things you said. So for some context for our listeners, if, if they're not around, around video games, crunch is essentially working very, very long hours, mm -hmm. especially in the final stages of production of a game. And most large video games, it used to be endemic. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are many studios which are famous for months upon months of extraordinarily long crunch hours. 
And this is something that does tend to wear down a lot of people in the industry. And the second thing that you mentioned was Gamergate, which was, I, I think, 2014, 2015? Yeah, somewhere around, around there. Around that time. Um, um, my summary, and, uh, and a lot of this you ask for yours in a, in a moment, would be a, a sustained campaign of harassment, especially against gaming journalists, that spiraled and started as a kind of relatively minor thing on obscure chat forums and then became a much more um, ominous thing over time and was particularly aimed at women and people who did not fit the what had been the traditional self-image of the game industry which is ultimately white men and what i'm really interested in is these kind of signals that an industry sends to people outside of it which I absolutely agree with you um, for a very long time have been really difficult, challenging signals. Mm -hmm. um, how, how does that, how does that hurt an industry that by definition is, makes products that everybody plays? So I think, <clears throat> excuse me. I think the biggest outcome is burnout. So we have so many people in the US that want to get into games, like the market for people who know how to develop games, either as a hobby or through education is very oversaturated. And because of that, um, there's not a lot of incentive for studios to stop crunching, especially the bigger ones. Uh, and you know, the fun part about crunch is that a lot of times at the end of it, people get fired in mass. Yes. So you're kind of like <clears throat> pushed and pushed and pushed to this point of either you just lose your job and they just replace you for financial reasons, or you just get so burned out that you cannot do it anymore and you leave the industry. And so because there's such high turnover across the board, uh, there's very few like industry elders. And so we kind of see the same yeah. discussions around games kind of popping up again every like five or so years. And so the level of advancement in uh, games theory particularly, but then, you know, of course that translates into like game production, uh, I think is not advancing as fast as otherwise might if people were able to, you know, stay in this industry for longer. It's really interesting you say, especially in, in game journalism, because I, I've, I have been around that for a fair amount of time. That amnesiac quality, you're absolutely right, where every few years we're having a new round of the same discussions. And I think there, there has clearly been progress and, and evolution on, on various fronts, but I absolutely agree there hasn't been you know, 20 years of evolution in the last 20 years. It's kind of been more like four rounds of five years of evolution every time. Yeah. And there is that quality, and it's a quality that people used to talk about with pop music, this idea that every few years there would be a new batch of young pop fans who wouldn't remember anything, so you could kind of give them the same stuff again. And games is different, but there is that sense of, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. For a medium with such a dense and rich history, sometimes it feels like we can't remember one year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. And that same discussion often just keeps on happening. And it's very weird if you're old enough to remember the previous rounds. And it's just like, this keeps on happening, yeah. why? Oh, and the other thing is like, you know, because there are so many people who want to get into the industry in the first place, uh, it is kind of like, you know, by any means necessary, right? So I remember at a, yes. at a career fair when I was still in California, um, there were tables for Rockstar and for Riot uh, in at the fair. And this was like right after the news had broken about, you know, people at Rockstar working 100-hour weeks and, you know, the huge sexual assault scandal at Riot. And both of them had tables that were just lined up around the building uh, because, you know, regardless of how they treat their employees, you know, those are the big name studios. Those are the ones that are going to get you clout, that are going to get you the big titles on your resume and that are going to advance your career by any means necessary, no matter what it costs you. Absolutely. And, and, and there is still, I think, even though there's a, there's a far stronger indie movement now in games, there is that golden ticket aspect, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if you have a, a large enough game on your resume, you get to pick your next job. And that is, that is a, always a challenging dynamic. It was, it was very similar in film, especially in film effects work, mm -hmm. where if you, if you have one or two really large shows on your reel, you get to pick stuff, but those shows are often the ones that are the hardest to work on. So very yeah. similar dynamics, but film at least, even though in some ways to me it's quite sclerotic and um, 
um, rapidly losing touch with the real world. Film has a level of maturity to it where there are, for instance, there are people over 35 in film, like mm-hmm. a lot of them, and there, there, there hasn't been the same level of turnover. Um, but games is still, uh, after all this time, I think, in a l- more in a positive way now, but it is still making the mistakes of a teenage industry, if you like. It mm-hmm. is still awkward in its own skin um, in many ways and doesn't understand quite how to get past that. It's, uh, um, with your work at Wild Seed, so, so what are you guys doing at Wild Seed? And even as a company, are you trying to change that balance? Oh, very much so. We're definitely trying to uh, break the mold in more ways than one. But on the subject of like company culture at Game Studios, uh, we are what's known as a teal organization or flat structured organization, meaning that uh, there's little to no hierarchy. Every member of the team is self-management, self-managed, excuse me. Um, so basically it's about extending a level of trust to everyone on the team that we're all going to uh, do what's best for the game and do our best to like, you know, bring our best selves forward and put our best work into the product um, because there is, you know, less pressure from the top to be, you know, doing things in a specific way. There's more room to like explore and like bring the unique way that your mind works into uh, this creative project that is everyone's baby, not just the person at the tops. Nice. And very much in terms of your own work output with, with Wild Seed, but in general, and you've talked really well and interestingly about having that awesome background and perhaps always coming at things from something of an outsider perspective, mm-hmm. just because of some of the perceptions. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, like, um, what are some of the things that you want to see around you and put into the world that you don't necessarily currently see? And I'm also thinking here of the N.K. Jemison essay, which is how long until Black History Future? Mm-hmm. Sorry, Black sorry, Future how long month. until? Thank you. How long You're until welcome. Black Future Month? I was, I have it up right here, and I completely <laughs> mispronounced the title. But all of the, all of these really kind of primal questions about what are we putting out into the world and what are we seeing in the world and what's that reflection like? Yeah. I joke a lot about how being at Wild Seed has completely spoiled me to being in the industry because it's my first industry job. I got this within like, thank you. Uh, I got it within a few months of graduating uh, and was still like, you know, sending out applications and all of a sudden I get a message on LinkedIn. Hey, you want to come work for a startup? Sure. Why not? I need, I need money. (laughs) Um, It's been great though. Um, but yeah, I think kind of what we're what we're doing now of like, you know, this emphasis on not only self-managed teams and, um, you know, everyone putting their own spin on the work, but also the emphasis on a, on a culture of positive interactions, healthy, critical conversations, and putting... Uh, we call it work-life synergy. So basically, you know, people talk about work-life balance. Uh, the way we look at it is wanting work and life to enhance each other. And part of that means, you know, taking time off when you need it. Like this week, a lot of people, myself included, have been having health problems. Uh, and it's totally fine to just go in sack and be like, hey, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to go lay down for a couple of hours. I'll see y'all later. <laughs> um, because, you know, we don't want people to burn out. We don't want the, we don't want each other to, like, you know, feel bad or feel tired and not be able to be our best at work. Oh, that's awesome, and and so so primarily fundamental to yeah. what what may what may hopefully be the future of work because it certainly wasn't the past of work. Yes, <laughs> was, correct. Yeah. There is there is a place you will be at it at least forty hours at these times, and if you do not show up, by definition, you are a bad employee. And this is this is how we work. Mm-hmm. This is um, the factory industrialization aspect from the 19th century um might finally be melting away a little and and, and all it took was was a giant global pandemic to to kind of help it along <laughs> yeah to make <laughs> us see the error of our ways <laughs> um if you don't mind i i i would love to talk about the indica jemison piece especially sure. because this is a, a a fascinating essay um very briefly i think from one of the world's 
most interesting and awarded and important sci-fi authors what i would describe from my perspective as a howl of frustration at where is the forward representation and imagining and future possibility rather than just let's keep on celebrating in ding dings the past but Mm -hmm. how how is this what's your take on this and what's your perspective on what she's arguing for so the book is a collection of short stories and i'm only partially through it but the the ones that i've read have all been wildly different from each other and i think that's really the crux of it is we want to see you know media with black people and people of color that is wildly different from any other piece of media with that um you know primary cast before because like you know so many films and tv shows about black people are about being black in america and about like you know the trauma and the pain and the problems that come with that um and you know whether that's rooted whether that's like the temporality of the media is you know actively in the past or it's just like you know something that's more in the present but it's still rooted in all of the things that have happened in our past uh there's a lot of overlap between like the messages of media that features black protagonists um but the second story in jemison's book um was it's about a kid who like gives birth to a city essentially it's very like abstract and yeah it's it's a very abstract piece that um you know kind of just pulls something that you wouldn't normally think of in any context and you know makes a story out of it and makes the protagonist a black kid and that's you know in itself really subversive, which is kind of upsetting to say, because, you know, normally you would think of like, you know, abstract works um, or plots that aren't related to uh, suffering and history and trauma as stories about white people most of the time. Yeah. And I think N.K. Jemison's writing is all about not like, you know, ignoring those roots because, you know, the other stories do like, you know, mention those kinds of things and like draw on them for like cultural inspirations for the characters but it's not it's not always about those things it's about things that are more like about the human experience not just the black experience and wanting to really tap into like you know the whole breadth of black people as people (laughs) so yeah yeah. that's a that's a really really awesome way of putting it and so i yeah, just as as I listen to you, like I I think of some like Grant Morrison, who's a comics legend. He's a he's a Scottish comics legend. He wrote things like The Invisibles. He did a whole load of really kind of um, Art Deco, Dada, uh, strange stuff, especially in the '90s. Mm-hmm. And Grant Morrison always had essentially total freedom to roam wherever he liked across all the fields of human experience and to do random experiments and to do strange stuff. And very much as a very famous white creator in the comics industry he just had a giant ticket to go grant go do whatever you want mm-hmm. there is no box and that level of just fundamentally kind of assumed freedom of expression just just i well of course i can i'm an experimental comics writer i can go do whatever the hell i want mm-hmm. and what i hear is this idea of well maybe everybody should just be able to one way or another buy that ticket for themselves Mm -hmm. and go and express the range of human experience what a what a powerfully simply stupidly (laughs) revolutionary idea bonnie exactly especially considering like uh you know there's plenty of black creatives who are out there doing things that you know are new and that are different but it's hard to be commercially successful because america is really addicted to the image of black people as you know as slaves as uh musicians as um you know sportsmen you know just a few very narrow boxes as far as like what can be commercially successful in the u.s as a work about black people and i think it has started to expand recently um with you know a lot of tv shows about like you know black families and things like that Issa Rae's Insecure I think was a big turning point it's like a uh my cousin was asking me last week he's like I want to watch a black soap opera I was like watch Insecure that's a black soap opera for you right there (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah because it's not um it's like I said it's something that like you know it's 
got elements of black culture in it because, you know, obviously the cast is majority black. And so it does not like ignoring that facet is just like, you know, it's part of the story. It's not the whole story. Yeah. Nice. And yeah, it's, it's a, again, it's kind of, to me, simple, but enormously powerful idea of um, at some point you have humans being humans in all our wonderfully messy ways. And eventually ideally in a perfect world the boxes kind of dissipate mm-hmm. which which clearly we are nowhere near yet but yes that's it's a very well well taken point and thank you no problem um now outside of all the wonderful work with wild seed and um living as you do I, th- I think on both coasts at the moment, or are you I, are you firmly back in Carolina, in the Carolinas? I am semi-firmly back in Carolina. I'm not like going back and forth <laughs> all the time, but I would like to, you know, I would like to move back to the West Coast someday. I don't know if I'd like to move there permanently, but, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to give both a try before making a decision. Nice. Do you have personal projects on the go at the moment as well, aside from the professional stuff that, that you're really into that... Um, I, I have several that were parked quite firmly during the pandemic and then I'm looking forward to getting back to. Like in your off hours, as it were, what kind of projects do you have on the go that are really interesting to you? Yeah, so the one that I have that was, as you say, parked by the pandemic <laughs> <laughs> was actually my graduate thesis. It was a, It's the game I was talking about earlier, the sci-fi thriller based on climate change and family dynamics. Uh, called, cool. Yeah, called, um, it's called Parallel. And uh, I, you know, always held it close and always like wanted to go back to it, but hadn't like, you know, seriously thought about it for a while. And then I saw this... Um, this uh, funding, this grant uh, program that I believe is funded by Viola Davis and her husband. Uh, And it's for like, you know, black creatives. And I submitted Parallel for it just completely on a whim. And I didn't get the grant, but I came in second. And a lot of people were really excited about it. Thank you. Um, And just like seeing all of the buzz that it generated on something that I just kind of did because I felt like it, (laughs) just to see what would happen really. was a real, I was like, I think it was a real turning point in like understanding that I need to like, you know, bet on myself more and understanding that like, you know, the ideas that I have are good and people like them and want to see them. And so I got a little bit more serious about um, pursuing that. It's still a bit stalled because there's a lot of like programming needs in it that I haven't really had time to figure out myself um, between, you know, work and moving and everything. Um, But I have been looking into other grants uh, so fingers crossed to be able to get some money so that I can hire somebody to help me out with the final programming needs. Um, and then the other thing I'm working on a bit more consistently is my blog. It's called Mixed Reviews because, you know, I'm mixed and I like puns and I think I'm funny. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I have, I have, I frequently have as many negative things to say about a game as I do positive ones. So it works on multiple levels. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually just published my longest ever post uh last month for black history month um it was all about zelda of course (laughs) and i'm already planning the next one it's going to be about um difficulty in games because that's been a that's a a very divisive issue (laughs) it is yes um again for our friends outside of the games industry a a particular series of games which is the dark souls and elden ring games um sparks a lot of interest around this because most games i would argue at the moment sorry a a a lot of normal games at the moment have the idea that there should be different difficulty levels and both for accessibility and just general enjoyment the there is an argument that there is a point of the dark souls and elden ring games they are difficult and that they should not have an easy setting or a story setting or anything like that and as happens in games this turns into a semi-religious war (laughs) and you have people sharpening their swords on all sides of it but it's it's a fascinating debate so i look forward to reading the post yeah thanks i can give you a little bit of a preview on my thoughts of it if you'd like please so this week at work we had a master class with uh, ux designer celia hodent and um she talked about at one point accessibility versus approachability accessibility being you know features that are incorporated into games specifically for people with disabilities um, whereas approachability is like, 
can this game is does this game have mass appeal and i think when it comes to the debate with difficulty settings the two terms kind of get conflated a lot because not everything that is meant for accessibility is meant to make things more approachable i think that's a good that's a side effect of it and you know i'm of the mind that like you know having an easier mode is never a bad thing at the bare minimum difficulty settings on a games i don't think it's ever a problem um but what i realized through that workshop is because is um is you know i have been doing more listening this time around about the um like from the dark source cloud dark souls crowd about the importance of difficulty to the experience um but i think what's missing is that the experience can be equally difficult played on an easier mode by a gamer who is less skilled and so while changing the difficulty um might change the experience for the player who like you know is really into these games i think the same experience can be had by more people with those different options and you know of course other accessibility and approachability options um that could then help bring more people into the fold by giving them the opportunity to you know have the same experience but in a way that feels possible rather than completely insurmountable um because that's the thing like people who are really into the dark souls games are really good at them um like you know they they know what they're doing they expect the challenge they know how to approach the challenges and for people who like you know don't have the um don't have the time or don't have the skill or whatever to uh like get really invested into doing that right off the bat um it makes it completely unapproachable even if they have a lot of interest in it um and so i think one of the one of the biggest um points of praise for accessibility options and approachability options in games recently has been god mode and hades which reduces your damage every time you die yeah and I played with that on because I could not get very far. And it was very upsetting because I wanted to play the game. Uh, and I managed to get through it. But like, you know, now I've played it so many times and I've gotten so much better at it because of that option that now sometimes I turn it off and I don't die so much anymore because I've gotten better at it. But I wouldn't have gotten better at it, at least not as fast. And I might have like, you know, just stopped playing completely if that option had not been there to like help me just get my footing in the first place. It's a really interesting perspective. Mine, for me, I'm at a point with my experience of games where to a huge extent, I personally don't care at all about mastering mechanical skills. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, There is one theory and approach of game design that essentially defines a game as a series of escalating challenges and mastery where the thrill of of getting better at the game is essentially its own reward. And for the vast majority of games, for me, um, I play on whatever the easiest or story mode is. Like, mm-hmm. like something like Assassin's Creed. I, I actually have no interest in mastering Assassin's Creed's combat system. I just want to run around whatever awesome landscape it is and experience the story. Mm-hmm. Es- especially for me, because I play a lot of these games next to my partner. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you see my cat just jump across me? Was that a cat moment? <laughs> yes. We had an awesome cat interlude. Are you okay? I'm fine. There's no video for the podcast, but it was really awesome. I, I'm actually super impressed. Oh uh, yeah, he normally he gets on my desk, and I was worried about him blocking the mic, but no, he just jumped across my lap and dug his little claws in, and then left. Oh, that's awesome! What a moment. This is one of the times when I'm actually really sad that we don't record the video for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but this is that was awesome. Yeah, he, <laughs> thank you for a hilarious moment, buddy. Of course, he loves to he loves to interrupt me when I'm on any sort of video call. <laughs> um, yeah, so 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 for me, where where my personal experience of games mostly is, I I play games on the couch next to my partner as a way to relax at the end of days, and we are we are looking essentially for some kind of interactive fun broadly story-based experience mm-hmm. usually and and so in that context i simply don't care about the mechanical mastery obviously other people do so i'm very happy that that exists yeah. but for me mostly my default for those things is story mode however um and this is really again just talking from my own experience that there is a very distinctive pattern with with dark souls and elden ring in particular and you alluded to it where there's a really distinct loop where it's basically you're going to get your ass kicked brutally multiple times. And then if you are persistent enough on whatever terms that that means, you're eventually going to beat the boss 
and this the really distinct sense of satisfaction that you get out of that is i i think quite unique in in modern large-scale gaming mm -hmm. it comes to me very strongly from the 80s where a lot of 80s arcade games are the same they're brutally hard and even advancing one more screen is like this giant victory because you mastered the mechanics type thing mm -hmm. and so there's that there's that really distinctive flavor that i think people do get from dark souls and elden ring which is the thing of i i got flattened like a bug <laughs> 200 times and on the 201st time i flattened the bug myself and oh my god i feel good mm -hmm. and if we if we from from my perspective if we take that as the the kind of what do i feel thing that is a core component of those games mm -hmm. your real question then is just okay how do you get everyone to that feeling if we can or or more people to that feeling right mm -hmm. so so it's a sort of um how do you open it up to be as you say approachable and accessible to more people but that's really that that really distinct feeling to me is the thing that the hardcore people really fall, fall in love with mm -hmm. and there, there must be ways over time to share it more i think elden ring actually does a really good job of this where um the previous games and that's in in that universe or that series they tended to to put you in a brick wall at some point there's a a single space and there's a single boss and that boss is the thing that you cannot get past mm -hmm. and you kind of don't have a lot of other options Elden Ring there's kind of backdoor approachability where you can always go off and do something easier and level up and get more powerful mm -hmm. it doesn't just put you in a thing of you are stuck and if you are not persistent enough you are always going to be stuck but it's a really interesting discussion of kind of back and forth um how does the design evolve over time mm -hmm. to bring as many people as possible into particular flavors of experience? Exactly, yeah. And I think with um, Elden Ring specifically, I, the thing that kind of got me thinking about this in the first place was I saw a tweet a while ago that was like the, was talking about how people are always asking for like games to be considered as art, but the games are art crowd tends to get really quiet when it becomes a conversation of difficulty being a component of the art. I was like, that's a really good point. Let me examine this. Um, and so I've actually tried out Elden Ring and been, I've been playing it a good bit. I've been having a good time with it. Um, I am not very good at it. That being said, I'm having a fantastic time just running yes. around with with no souls on me. No well, runes, excuse yes. me. <laughs> uh, I, I made it to this like weird secret underground river area that I massively underleveled for. Um, but I went in there and I had already like gotten rid of all my runes from leveling and so i went in there with none and honestly it's been great just like running around knowing full well that i'm gonna get got every yeah. single time i try to get anywhere um <laughs> i'm just i'm playing it like a stealth game and it's fun um that being said i do feel like you know i'm gonna get to a point and i'm gonna plateau and not be able to like advance the game anymore because i don't know how i'm going to i don't I don't know what it's going to take to develop the skills that I need because like, I think, you know, the difference between a game like Elden Ring and like an 80s arcade game is the complexity of the mechanics. Um, sure. And I noticed this a lot when I was playing The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess with my sister, um, who is not a gamer, um, but she graciously agreed to play it with me. And so I was watching her and she was playing it in ways that just did not make sense to me a lot of the time. Like she was not good at like the targeting uh, and like doing action simultaneously. There were times when like she was trying to master one of the skills and I couldn't tell her what she was doing wrong because like the actions for a controller for me are very natural. Um, whereas, you know, with 80s arcade games, it was like, what, a stick and one or two buttons? <laughs> so that was a much more approachable format for mastery whereas in elden ring i've been playing games again since i was five or six and i cannot find anything <laughs> on the in like the the menus don't make sense the uh the controls are a little bit all over the place um and it's just like you know it's i'm sure they they make sense to you know people who are more familiar with the series but still they're very complicated like every button is used and there's like 12 of them it's it's difficult just not just on like 
a mental level, but on like a physical level, if you're not yeah. really good with a controller already, you're going to have an even worse time. And even somebody who does have, who is like, you know, good with that particular tool, but isn't necessarily good with that particular style of game is going to have a pretty hard time as well. There's a, it's, it's, it's really good you say there's a, there's a level of perversity around the controls of the, of those particular games, even if you are quite experienced with them. And part of it is if you, yeah, if you play games on the, on, on controllers for a long time you build up some level of muscle memory mm -hmm. about where usually the usual paradigms are yeah and there's a few things in Elden Ring and Dark Souls is it the return of the cat yes oh my god <laughs> I'm so sorry can I get up one second and put him in a room of course please <laughs> thank let's you let's have a cat break that sounds great please no hold. problem at all <laughs> okay sorry about that he knocked something off my shelf so I had to put him in jail <laughs> <laughs> That's I should have done this from the start. This was an oversight <laughs> on my part. <laughs> right, so so that's awesome. We we have completed the second cat break. I I expect several more <laughs> at various points. But this is a really discussion, and it's um, yeah, there there is a perversity, especially in the Elden Ring controls, and and even I think relative experienced players um, at the point at the exact point in the terrifying battle when you're on the verge of death and you need to do the thing that you need to do, your instincts kick in and you push the wrong button and you die horribly. And this yes. is an experience that I think almost everyone has. It's a really distinctive thing. And I actually, in a, I, I admire that kind of perversity sometimes where it's just like, you guys are more than capable of essentially remapping your controls and and your overall paradigm mm -hmm. to something that's more normal. But I, I think you actively chose <laughs> to just make this just a little a little dastardly. I, I actually really appreciate that. And it's a really good point to say, like, I always use as, as my, my thumbnail benchmark for all this stuff, I think of my mum, my, my absolutely wonderful mum, who doesn't really play games, but has sort of been around me playing games my whole life. And my mum can can basically on an instinctual level she can get her idea around a a single stick and probably two buttons mm -hmm. because again my mother has not spent her life playing video games and as soon as you go beyond that which as you say was very much what was going on in the 80s you're you're already into a level of sophistication and assumption about your player that is beyond what a civilian starts with mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting thing to me of um how did we get so far down the road of even the, the the base level of skill needed to to move in almost any 3d environment in games mm -hmm. is beyond a person who has not played games before this has never happened for instance with tv or movies yeah almost almost anyone can sit down and start to watch a movie and the basic inputs of watching a movie if you have sight and sound you you can watch a movie perfectly happily yeah but with games there are subtitles. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. When and and with controlling games, we're using controllers and or mouse keyboard, we're already multiple generations past this point where we can invite people into our our house, our club mm -hmm. easily, right? Yeah, um, this is actually a pretty good segue to bring up my sister once again because uh, cool. yeah, just like. She's, she's my favorite case study of gamers because, like I said, with the first time she played Twilight Princess, it did not go exceptionally well. She beat it, and I was very proud. Um, but, you know, did have a lot of issues with the controller. But then uh, Animal Crossing came out on Switch, and she had played New Leaf a little bit, and she really liked it. So uh, she bought a Switch to play New Horizons, and because she spent so much time playing that, she got more comfortable with the controls, uh, with just like having a controller in her hands. Um, and then so the second time she played Twilight Princess, um, she was so much better at it, just because like the mechanical element of, uh, she had had more training in like the mechanical element of like, you know, the the inputs for video games in general. And that helped her, you know, perform a lot better on this game that is, you know, harder and higher stakes than a casual game like Animal Crossing. Um, so I think, you know, as far as learning about inputs, it's, um, you know, not to say that casual games are, you know, exist to be a bridge towards higher difficulty games. But I think it's really interesting that like, you know, to have seen that, you know, a person who is very interested in casual games can develop more skills that can be used in more games in like, you know, a calm, low stakes environment um, if they so choose. So I just thought that was neat. <laughs> nice. And 
there's something I think that you see a lot in people who are working either in virtual reality or the various types of augmented and extended reality. And one of the things, in my experience, that people in those areas are quite excited about is this opportunity to almost reset the whole input paradigm. Mm -hmm. Because ideally, once you have the headset on, virtual reality can be more instinctive because you don't necessarily have a controller. There's this chance to maybe um, rethink from scratch how do you interact with a virtual world. Mm -hmm. Do you see much of that happening in a positive way? I can't speak to VR too much because I have terrible motion sickness, so I haven't played a lot of VR games. <laughs> well, that's the first part. That's the first part of approachability. If you're throwing up, it's not very accessible or approachable. Exactly. Body. Yeah. It's like I can I can play Beat Saber and I can play games that allow you to teleport to move. But anything that ha that where you where I have to like press a control stick and go forward while I am standing still, absolutely not. I will fall over. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do I do love being in VR and like. Um, pressing the triggers and like seeing my little virtual fingers move. I think that's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I think the controllers, uh, aside from like the form that they take of like, you know, being much more um, ergonomic and fitted to like the natural curves of a hand um, or like in uh, separate ways rather than like on one apparatus. Um, aside from that, I feel like it's still very much within the paradigm of a normal controller because it's still got like you know the a b x y buttons uh they're not sure. grouped exactly the same way but you know it's a form that i don't think is so distant from a controller that it's like reinventing the wheel you know and and i think part of the um part of the challenge there might be as well every time that people have tried to do just gesture controls which in theory should be much more instinctive mm -hmm. you immediately run into this thing of um how high definition can you get how how much control can you exert mm -hmm. without um at the very least as you say making someone horribly throw up as <laughs> as the virtual world goes goes a little sideways yeah. <laughs> oh goodness but this is that thing right it's 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 so interesting to me that you say it, like um, one of the things that, that augmented reality, which I would, as a very shorthand, I would say, if you think of virtual reality as you put on a headset and you are completely enveloped in a world, an augmented reality might be more like a pair of glasses that mm -hmm. kind of overlays things onto the world. The the augmented reality idea, I, th I think most people in, in theory could put on glasses and have some readouts or some things on their world and not fall over backwards or throw up. Mm -hmm. But virtual reality, it's still like... Um, there is definitely still a thing there where most people, their first entry into that world, as they put the helmet on, they first, they may feel claustrophobic. Second, they may lose their balance. Third, they may or may not feel quite sick. Mm -hmm. These are, these are still very high barriers to entering into this world that we all share of games, interactivity, interactive spaces. Yeah. Um, how do we how do we lower these barriers across the board? If, if the goal, and I think the goal might be to essentially give the entire world the opportunity to experience the things that we love and build on them. How do we drop all these barriers that exist to pe more people enjoying games? That is an excellent question because there's a lot of barriers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess speaking to VR in particular, the first thing I would say is every game that requires you to walk should allow you to teleport. Because like I said, I've played two VR games where you're like embodying a person um, that are not V-Saber. And uh, one of them I could teleport, the other one I could not. And the second one was a horrible experience. Um, so, you know, just finding, testing features like that, that, you know, may not feel as quote unquote natural as, um, you know, how you would expect to move in the physical world. Um, Cause you know, obviously I can't teleport across the room to my door. I wish I could, but I can't. <laughs> um, but being willing to like <laughs> test things that like bend the laws of reality uh, without being so caught up in, you know, without trying to be so immersive that it like turns into just like a replication of what is around us that cannot be, that just, it doesn't work because it's not the same kind of environment. Um, and like trying to implement those experimental things in, you know, unique and creative ways and like definitely getting uh, more testing from people with, uh, you know, who are prone to motion sickness, who have different types of disabilities with like vision that might impact VR, um, 
with mobility that might impact uh, controls. That's something that should be happening across the industry completely. Uh, and it's interesting that you brought up controller remapping because uh, I recently learned that that's one of like the top line items for accessibility for um, people with um, mobility related disabilities. Um, so yeah, I guess just a willing to experiment and a willingness to listen to the people who uh, have trouble playing games in whatever traditional format they are presented. Nice. And I think one of the things that, that we do see is, I think Microsoft in particular has really um, made an effort to shift from uh, there are normal people and then there's accessibility issues to by default, all all <sighs> games ideally should be accessible and approachable to all people and they've invested a great deal of time and effort into some really interesting controllers and options mm -hmm. and just a default thing that it's a thing that you see um, outside of games but but in user experience where you try and shift accessibility from the exception case to the default case mm -hmm. the default case is that whatever experience we're creating everybody can enter into it versus you create the normal experience in Ding Dings and then you sort out all of the edge cases for the people who don't meet your definition of normal. Mm -hmm. And that's that's two very different approaches to accessibility, but I think shifting the whole conversation to the default, by default, this thing is available to everyone who wants to participate in it. Yeah. is a really fundamental shift that I think is really useful. Um, it's really interesting to say with the... Um, shifting away from the boring old thing of just trying to recreate reality which which i think is really powerful i mean if we think of um books and films mm -hmm. some of the most powerful films fundamentally accept that it's a guided tour through a lucid dream it has no bearing on reality mm -hmm. time space character everything um is is not realistic at all and with books and words on a page i mean that's literally a separate version of reality in and of itself it's these little scratchy things that refer to things somewhere in our brain mm -hmm. and i think both media which are obviously much older than video games they fundamentally at their best they kind of lean into this idea of yeah this isn't real yeah why why are we trying to be real why why would we do that this let's go off on journeys into these these nether spaces that actually have no real connection with reality but they work as a way for our minds to journey and experience things mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a conversation in games that crops up a lot with art styles, because um, you'll see, you know, every every year there's like you know studios making these big AAA productions and being like, look at how photorealistic these characters are. Like I know, like with um, the New Horizon game, you've got like the little the little baby sensory hairs on Alloy's face, um, which you know. That's super impressive that they were able to do that. That incredibly specific detail of like, you know, real people. Um, but do we need that? Like, I remember um, when the new Ratchet and Clank came out, uh, someone tweeted, uh, like, why aren't there physics on these leaves? I walk into them and I just go right through. I don't, they don't bounce or anything. And then a developer that I follow, Rami Ismail, uh, quote tweeted him and was like, here's a question, who cares? <laughs> Like there are more interesting things we could do be doing than worrying about, you know, replicating real physics and like the exact proportions of like, uh, you know, getting a face that fits into the uncanny valley and all this kinds of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, personally, as far as like the um, technical advancements in games, um, like I said, super impressive that we're able to do all of that. But I think, uh, you know, there's more value in experimentation than there is in replication. That's a, that's a really beautiful way to put it, and I'm literally just noting that down now, so I, <laughs> so I can steal, so I can steal it for later. But it's um, um, yes, and and I think, in my experience at least, you have um, part of the thing about the technical problems of simulation, mm -hmm. um, that's so fascinating. If you are someone who was working on the on those challenges, people who are trying to figure out cloth and hair and physics and water and f fluids in general, um you can go down a, a glorious rabbit hole mm -hmm. of those technical challenges and they're absolutely fascinating to work on for those people. Mm -hmm. But I do agree that outside of the core fascination of solving the problem, the um, I personally do not need even better water physics in most of the games or experiences that I want to have. I'm really, I, I really love the water as it is. I, I vastly appreciate Aloy's hair, but my enjoyment of Horizon 
as a game series is not probably dependent on me going look at that hair that hair is really good that that's really good follicles right there <laughs> that's probably not my my thing or that yeah um one anecdote and one caveat first the anecdote uh when you bring up water specifically i remember playing uh paper mario and the origami king when it came out and there was this level where there's like you know a river suddenly floods and i was expecting like you know little paper cutouts of waves and no it was the most beautiful water physics i've ever seen in my life <laughs> whereas everything else was paper cutouts and it was very disorienting like it was extremely pretty and i was not mad at it whatsoever <laughs> um so like sometimes this technology has a place but that being said like i would not have been bothered if i had saw what i expected which was something more consistent with the art style um and then with the caveat specifically since you mentioned alloy's hair um Black hairstyles in video games. Let's talk. Ah, <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, because there's um, there's a lot of room there for technical advancement that just has not been done. Like, uh, there was so much hype over the Elden Ring character creator because you can like make a carbon copy of yourself. And I opened it and I looked. It's got the worst black hair options I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, it's just... I can't even, I can't. Uh, just like, you know, this tiny little afro, the edges are dirty, like the, the um, you can't, like the way that it spirals out just doesn't look real at all. And I'm like, okay, you've got all this technology going into photorealism. Yeah. Put it towards something that's uh, been missing from this industry for years and that people have been asking to be fixed for years um, and fixing themselves for years. Um, and I wanna just say kudos to the Animal Crossing team because uh, they did not have a good selection of black hair options at launch. And a lot of people in the community were like really fighting for that. I wish I could remember the name of the woman who was kind of leading that charge, but uh, listeners, you should look up that whole thing and find out. Um, but because of what we were saying and what she was presenting, like the little mock-ups that she, that she was doing and everything, um, they, you know, they added more hair options in and like, you know, some of them are... Um, you've got like the afro, you've got the braids, you've got the little afro puffs, which are adorable. Um, and then like the nice poofy hairstyle that looks a little bit like mine. Um, and it's, it's stylized. It's not like, you know, it doesn't have like the super realistic, like, uh, curl textures on it or anything, but yeah. like, there's a little bit of bounce to it. It like fits in with the world with like, you know, how, um, with like the way that it's smoothed over, but like you can still tell that there is like dimension to it and like the coloring. Um, and I just thought that was really beautiful that they actually went to the trouble of adding it and like added it in a way that like really fits in with the rest of the game. So like basically just like there's more than one way to accomplish new things and to advance like art in visual art, especially in a visual capacity within games. Absolutely. And, and to your point, I think very much about, again, shifting the default to a point where we have humans or characters in our game, like, like at default. And, and I agree, like I, I, I have no idea what, what the, the actual physics challenges of any hairstyle are, but just this conscious thing of, well, the people who, we're, who we are bringing into our experience that we've created, why don't we have the proper range of options mm -hmm. for how people might want to look in our game mm -hmm. like it's it's and 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 that to me is is a, is a it's it's almost a business strategy and time and effort and focus choice rather than a technical one right mm -hmm. it's just a thing of like this is the game this is these are the experiences that we want to make for the people that we want to make them for mm -hmm. which which is really powerful yeah and and it's that's super awesome that actually interacting with the community of people who play your game and you go ah oh, right no we 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 were blind to that why don't we bring this into our game mm -hmm. that's that's really that even even though it probably shouldn't have happened in the first place to me is a really positive sign of an evolving approach to bringing human beings on board yeah exactly uh i was just um i'm currently being a thesis advisor on the committee for somebody who actually worked on uh, parallel with me when i was in grad school she's still in the program um, her name is Michelle Ma and she's doing like a speculative prototype for an inclusive character creator, uh, which includes, oh. yeah, it's, it's really cool. It includes like, you know, different body types, uh, different, um, like physical mobility aids, uh, hairstyles and everything. And in her research paper, she was talking about how, 
um, games uh, how like basically just like the default mode for games like kind of what you're saying is to just not even think about this stuff in the first place or if they do just put it on the cutting room floor um, once it's time for things to start getting so because it's not like perceived as valuable which is stunning to me because uh, fun fact as far as like the proportions of you know people of different races in the U.S. and how uh, what systems that they play on and how often that they play um, black and Hispanic players actually play on consoles um, which you know many of these games are on um, more than uh, white players and I believe spend a longer amount of time playing them typically as well so the audience is here that's not an excuse <laughs> <laughs> And, and I think you've seen that that a very similar pattern play itself out over and over again across entertainment media over the past century, where um, if you're only looking in certain places for your hypothesis about who your audience is, mm-hmm. then you will just get validated on that. And then there's these vast tranches of people who are going, I, I am here with my money, ready to contribute to your thing. Yes. And you don't see them. And then... There'll be random breakout cases that's happened in movies, especially, obviously, but across the board, suddenly something will happen where there's some kind of wild breakthrough. Like we 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 dared to put a black woman in the lead of a film. Oh, my God. Terrifying. <laughs> and said film is really good and makes a vast amount of money. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, well of course, of course, we were always going to do this. Yeah. We were just waiting for the first test case. I mean, th- this is the pattern, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 is, it is the reality of that particular kind of entertainment industry that almost everyone is a fast follower yeah and very very few people are actually leaders because being a leader one way or another often means taking a a jump or a very small step into what is seen as the unknown Mm -hmm. and that's terrifying um but as soon as you get one one use case that proves itself suddenly everyone was always on board and oh yes of course sort of thing it's it's a very interesting and very frustrating dynamic i think across entertainment that games is possibly right in the middle of now yeah exactly i don't really have anything else to add i think that sums it up very well actually (laughs) um as as we head towards the close and and again thank you so much for your time This this has been awesome um one of the things that i think a lot about from my perspective, and I'm really interested in, in other people's perspectives, I, I do think more and more these days about impact. Mm-hmm. One of, For instance, one of the things that I really want to do with this podcast is simply, for my own benefit, have conversations with interesting people. This is, this is the fundamental selfish reason for the podcast. <laughs> but also for, for an audience, this idea of having some kind of impact of um, getting into the minds of people who are trying interesting, brave, difficult, creative things across the board and giving listeners this idea of there's a whole bunch of human beings who are on sometimes pretty difficult journeys, but they are trying things and they are trying to have an impact on the world. And connecting people with the reality of it's never smooth and easy. Yeah. It's never just, I woke up and decided to change the world. It's more like I'm halfway up this mountain and the snows have closed in and I have no idea where I'm going. But I think about the impact of trying to have this podcast be a set of conversations that potentially just brings forward those things for an audience. Um, For you, in terms of the work that you're doing and just what you want to do in general, do you have a sense of, if if you're in the entertainment business, fundamentally, one way or another, you are trying to make something for an audience, to have some kind of effect on an audience? Do you have a sense at this point of what what impact and effect you might want to have on audiences now and in the future through your work? Yeah, so this reminds me of when I was in undergrad, I had to do an internship. And so I volunteered um, at a local majority black high school for this program they had called Come Around My Way. It was like a documentary filmmaking program. And I was only there for the fall semester, and then they finished up their projects in the spring semester. And in the fall, we were doing a lot of really experimental stuff, and these kids wanted to, like, you know, make, uh, they wanted to, like, do dancing videos, do photography projects, and, you know, stream video games, and, you know, all of the things. And then at the end, I went to, like, their showcase in the following spring, and their documentaries were much more about, um, 
you know, living in like the rough areas of town and like seeing their friends die and things like that, you know, just like, you know, more things that, you know, like I was talking about way at the beginning that America is addicted to as far as the image of black people as just like these long suffering individuals. Um, And it really just like, kind of broke my heart to see that that's the direction it went in because the um the person that I was working with at the at the mentorship program kind of warned me in advance like you know that is kind of how it goes because the people who are funding this program that's the kind of content that they want to see right um and so I I'm getting a little bit emotional I'm I think about those kids and I think about you know all of the creativity and all of the dreams and all the ideas that they had um, and how they just were not afforded the space to explore that. And it just makes me really sad. And I just want my career to, you know, be a signal for other black kids from South Carolina that, you know, they can, they can do this too. And it's not impossible to, break out of the mold of what the rest of this country thinks we should be like. Nice. What a, what a perfect and beautiful note to end on. Bonnie Harrislow, thank you so much. Where can people find you on the internet? So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, just LinkedIn slash Bonnie HL. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is Southern Bonnebel, um, spelled S O U T H R N. B O N I B E L L. I just changed it recently, so it's over fifteen characters. So I gotta like keep track of it. Um, and then my blog is mixed reviews. That's mixed hyphen reviews net. Brilliant. I'm gonna stop the podcast itself here, and then we'll chat a little bit after. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Bonnie. Of course. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.